make some room for the large print edition back here. Spoke with my friend Coulter this week, and he's a professional preacher out in Texas. And I told him I was going to do a little bit on 1 Peter 5, 5, which is clothe yourself in humility before the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. And he said he had done his sermon through the Bible, God the Tailor. And he took the clothing and traced it from the fig leaves of Genesis all the way through to the gold, the white clothing of the Revelation. And he does this as a help to people to try to get them to see everything can be traced through the Bible. Whatever you converse with people about can be brought back to the Bible. And from there, as is said in, in the story of the eunuch, he began there and taught him Jesus. So everything that we converse with people about, there's a possibility of bringing Jesus into it. And he does that to encourage people to do this. I'm going to use the clothe yourself metaphor to just bring out some basic points about Christianity. And we'll start, we'll be in Matthew 5 in just a minute, but we'll start with 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 and 6, and I'll go ahead and read that. Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Clothe yourself with humility and other passages about clothing ourselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, is a, a great place to start with a definition of humility. And I was asked the other day, just what is humility? And I stumbled a little bit because I, I know what it is in my heart, but to turn around and tell somebody what it is as a dictionary definition, I wasn't quite sure of. But I read a great definition of it. It is recognizing our own smallness. Now, being 5'7 and weighing about 140 pounds, I should recognize my own smallness, but I suffer terribly with a lack of humility. And I just wanted to go on and, and make some points about it this morning. The Sermon on the Mount has been called, from the very worst, malignant teaching to a somewhat more reasonable, it's just impractical, to being considered merely a construct for social order. But that's not what it is. No one who is not converted to Christianity will ever understand the Sermon on the Mount. Those who are worldwide, world-wise, are destined absolutely not to understand it. It's an esoteric idea. Only those inside of Christ really should understand this teaching. It's the best known, least understood, and the most unpracticed of all of Jesus' teaching. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. And blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the poor in spirit, as it relates to humility, where does our spirit come from? What spirit do we have? The only spirit we have is given to us from God. 
And how can we possibly be rich in something that we don't own? I saw a billboard, not a billboard, a reader board the other day, and it said, I'm one step away from being rich. All I need now is money. <laughs> so if the, if the spirit is not ours to begin with, it is given to us by God, how can we be rich in our own spirit? In verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourning. This is not a worldly mourning. This is not a mourning over death or over sickness or over loss of material goods because this is what the world does. Anyone who loses something in this lifetime is going to mourn over it. We've lost something that is important to us. Yes, we should mourn of those things. But this mourning is the mourning for the lack of godliness, the lack of camaraderie among Christians that we don't see because so many people aren't Christians. So this is a not a mourning for worldly things, not a mourning for ourselves, but this is a mourning for our maker, the one who has given us spirit, the one who gives us everything. And then the final one that we're going to look at in Matthew is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I'm not one who likes to say, well, that word just doesn't mean exactly what you think it does in that passage because it's changed. It's not the Greek. It's, and I'm not going to use that defense. But I will tell you that this translation, the way that this is translated, I'm sorry, this word does not mean the same in this day and age as it did a while back. It has nothing to do with weakness. Meek now is somebody who just can't get anything done because they are so feeble. And that's not what it means. It is about power. It has to do with power. I was told a story about a military man who was a Christian who was sitting with the premier of China and there was a flyby. The Chinese jets flew by the battleship or the aircraft carrier and it was a big deal. And this general looked at the Premier and said, you can say that we're friends and play this down, or you can escalate this thing and we will wipe you off the planet. And he knew that he had, and we do have the power to defeat the Chinese army, but he, did, he gave the man an out. He said, here's your option. Be friends with us or we'll go to war. If he was not a meek man and took his power and used it for the wrong reasons, he could have said, now's our chance to get our money back from the Chinese, and I'm going to start it, and the president will appreciate it. But no, he, he used his meekness to do what was right in the sight of God because he was a godly man. So what power do we have that keeps us from being meek? I can do what I want. I can do what I want. I have free will. Yes, there's constraints in law and society that keep me from doing certain things, but when it comes to our interpersonal action, I don't have to care at all what you think, how you feel, how it's going to affect you to a certain degree, but I can do and treat you with the power that I have to do what I want. I can be mean, I can be grumpy, or I can take my power and submit and be humble before you as our passage has said. So how we see ourselves before God is our poorness in spirit. 
It's His Spirit that's given to us. How we see ourselves before one another is the meekness. Jesus had power in two realms. He had power in the heavenly realm and he had power on the earthly, in the earthly realm. At the time he was on trial in Matthew, he told Pilate that he had the power to call 10,000 angels to destroy the world and prevent him from even going to the cross. He could reach up there and call upon this and be done with this whole thing. But he loved us so much that he did not do this. He kept going. He went to the cross so that we could sit here this morning and remember him in the Lord's Supper and think about the great things that he has done that we might be reconciled to him in the eventuality of all things. He humbled himself before God and before men. And that, my friends, is what we're called upon to do. I'm going to go back to 1 Peter here for just a minute and look at verse 5 and 6 again. And we're going to take note of the quote that Peter uses here, that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again, I'm not one to say, hey, this translation is all messed up. But what it's doing here is it's comparing the humility and the proudness. And if you think about what the Bible is about, it's not about us and whether we're proud or humble. It's about God. And what we're talking about here is not proud or humble. We're talking about God resisting the proud or giving grace to the humble. This is what, what Blake was talking about a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about godliness. That as much as we try to imitate God, we don't become godly. And I'm going to make Blake's sermon say anything I want to as long as he doesn't come listen to mine. But that's okay because most people do that with the entire Bible anyway. But what, he was point, what his point was that we don't become godly. We don't become godlike. By trying to seek the divine nature of God, he imparts to us godly attributes that the world will hopefully see through us. So we're given his nature by being humble before him. And I just want to move over to 2 Philippians, or excuse me, there's no 2 Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, to make this point from Scripture. That's 2 Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ. That needs no explanation. It merely needs application. And that, my friends, is the hard part. I asked James to read Isaiah 40 because it gives such a, a great view of the mighty hand of God. And it's a little bit difficult in the uh, 
ASV version that he was reading from to see this some of the time. But the other night at a Bible study, we were talking about the deep space view of the Hubble, from the Hubble. And it looks out into the darkest part of the universe from a perspective of a drinking straw 10 feet long. And it's a picture of approximately 100,000 galaxies. Looks like stars, but it's galaxies. And if you think about the size of a galaxy, it's what, four to 100,000 light years across? And the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second? How big is that? And I started thinking about that and trying to, to even think about 186,000 miles. I mean, it's 24,000 miles around the Earth. How many times around the Earth is a I can't do that math. And to, to me, this tiny little, not even a, as big as a cell. And then Isaiah 40 says, he holds the seas in the cup of his hand. And I had a little bit of water in my hand this morning, and I thought, that might be a teaspoon. A big man might have a hand that you know, could hold a, a quarter of a cup, maybe even close to half a cup of water in a very, very large man's hand. And God has taken the seas and held them in his hands. And a span, a span, tiny span of my hand, but God's magnificent hand, the entirety of the universe. Just, it's un, un, how did I say it? It's almost to the point of unbelief. And I just wish God might have taken his finger and reached it over and put it right on the tip of that space telescope and said, see my hand? I'm real. But he doesn't do that for us in this day and age. So Isaiah 40, God asks us to look at his creation, to look at his justice, to look at his judgments. And then he asks the idol makers, how would you compare this? To what would you compare this? A stick, a stone, a stick covered with gold plating? Do you not see? Have you not heard? And then he goes on to say, the inhabitants, the nations, are like stubble. He'll burn them up. They will be subject to his justice and be judged by him. And then he goes on to ask Judah and Jerusalem, do you not think that he sees you? Do you not think his judgment is going to come upon you? And many in this day and age will tell you that God has changed. He's not the God of wrath of the Old Testament. But I would ask you to ask Herod, because in Acts chapter 12 and verse 3, it tells us specifically that because Herod had been called the voice of a God, not the voice of a man, and had failed to give God the glory, the angel of the Lord struck him and he died. There's no doubt from the scripture that God still struck Herod dead even after Jesus was crucified. And you can go back to Acts chapter 5 and look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You have not lied to God, not lied to men, but lied to God. And he struck them dead. And a few hours later, Peter knew what was happening when Sapphira came back in. And he said, for what price did you pay 
sell the land for her? And she said, well, it was the price that my husband said. And he said, well, again, you've not lied to men, but to God. And struck her dead, knowing that it was going to happen. And in Acts 24, when Paul is on trial before Felix, Felix liked Paul. He called him often and talked to him. But when Paul talked to him about righteousness and self-control and judgment, Felix became afraid. What was he afraid of? He sent Paul away because he was afraid. He was afraid because he was talking about judgment. And judgment is coming. It's not going to be things that we see in this day and age. We're told in the first book of Hebrews that he's speaking through us, to us through his son now. And we're not seeing the divine action the way that they saw it in the Old Testament. It was a very physical time back then. They were promised land. Now we're not promised a land. We're promised a law that's written on our hearts. We're promised a spiritual kingdom in the time to come. Hebrews 12, or Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31 makes it very clear that there is a judgment to come. For if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We live in a different time and in a different realm from where God's judgment is going to come in the last of days. I'm going to go to one final passage and then we'll conclude, make an application and conclude. I want to go to the book of Isaiah in chapter 3. And God is, is giving a prophecy about the time when Jerusalem is going to be judged. And he's going to talk to the men, beginning in verse 6. And he says, When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler. And these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your ruler, or I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak, for you should not appoint me ruler of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their actions are against the Lord, to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them. They display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Basically, he is accusing them of being self-deceiving, blaming others for their own shortcomings, opposing God, being sinful and proud of it. And then he goes on in verse 16 to talk to Judah's women. And he says, Moreover, because the daughters of Zion are proud, 
and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tingling the bangles on their feet. Therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, ring fingers, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, garments, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now it will come about that day instead of sweet perfume there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloths, a branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword, your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. I chose that passage because of the seemingly insignificant things that he lists there. Rings and bangles and bracelets and fine clothing and veils and turbans and things that have no inherent wickedness in themselves. But the fact that they were putting these things as tiny as a hand mirror or a full-length mirror in the bathroom where we all stand before, they were putting these things before God. They were doing it with pride. They were doing it with power because seduction is power. And the men... I was going to say, this is our world. The world that we live in is seduced by all these things, by what these men were guilty of, blaming each other, opposing God, being sinful and proud of it. Last year at our Science in the Bible forum at Lilburn, when I was worshiping with those men, had a man who was a renowned scientist from Georgia Tech was speaking and he was talking about society and he I'm going to paraphrase because I didn't get his quote exactly right but it struck me so hard because he said I I have been conditioned to think this way by a society that validates by emotion not by what I should know and could know by faith. And what he's saying is, because society thinks I feel, I want, I can have, and it is pervasive upon us, we don't go to the scripture and know the things that we should know by faith. The things that God has taught us that should be in our heart is pushed out by the things, the influence of the world. And I pre-read that judgment will come on both the men and the women. The men will fall by the sword and the woman will sit at the gate alone. Second Samuel 12, David being punished with the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba, the child that they had conceived, the infant was dying. David was lamenting and praying and fasting 
And the servants were whispering among one another. And David asked, is the child dead? He said, yes, the child has died. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and came to the house of the Lord and worshiped. And they asked him, the child was still alive. You were praying and mourning. But now that the child is dead, you get up. And he said, yes, but the child has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not come back to me. David knew sin. David knew the consequences of sin. And David also knew about the afterlife. No judgment is mentioned, but we know from 2 Corinthians 5 that we will all be judged for the things that we've done in this body. And also in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that we long to be clothed with immortality. That is the, he has set immortality within us, that we would search for it, that we would want it, that we would desire it. And this is the hope that we have. Galatians 3.27 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Washed and changed. Not just our clothes, but our conscience, our sinfulness has been washed away by the waters of baptism. A different analogy in Colossians 2.12, but very similar, the same analogy that's in Romans 6, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the workings of God who raised him from the dead. We were buried with him in baptism. To those who would claim that baptism is works of salvation, that you're trying to work yourself into heaven by being baptized, I would say it is works of salvation. Because 2 Corinthians 12 tells us it is works salvation. It is faith in the works of God. It is the work of God that cleanses us through the waters of baptism. It is an appeal. If you go back just one or two pages from 1 Peter where we are now, it tells us that baptism saves us. Baptism is humility. It is an appeal for a clean conscience. To appeal, you have to be humbled. To, to, to desire a clean conscience, you have to admit that you don't have a clean conscience. I'm going to close with that thought. If you want to discuss any of these things, let's have a discussion. So, let's stand and be encouraged with the singing. <laughs>